All right, students, let's talk about the wrathful today. So, Terrace 3, the wrathful and Dante's Purgatorio. We're going to talk about Cantos 16 through 18 today, get as far as we possibly can, talk about Marco Lombardo, Free Will and the Stars. We're going to talk also about Two Sons Theory. We're going to talk also about rational and natural love and the structure of the Purgatorio. So, as we enter the third terrace, the third cornice of purgatory, we notice the raffle. And in fact, we don't actually notice the raffle because what we first notice are, is uh, acrid smoke, which is described explicitly as being darker than hell, suggesting something like, those who are wrathful are more blind or just as blind as those in hell, suggesting that to be so angry that you are blinded to the truth is like to experience a small moment of hell, scarily enough. And so a question you might well ask about these spirits which seem to be giving off this acrid smoke is, does the smoke come from the steaming or boiling nature of anger? And does this connect actually to how anger is represented down in the inferno? Because recall in circle five, the angry and the sullen underneath the water or above the water of the sticks, what was coming up off of those sullen, angry individuals beneath the water? Bubbles. Bubbles indicating that they too were steaming or boiling in the same way. Good, 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 good. And this recalls also to us somebody that Dante did not know as well as we know because he did not have access to this text. He did not have access to the Greek texts. Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, just stories about them, French stories largely, like Le Roman de Troyes. And so, a person that I think of when I think of rage and being blinded to its effect on myself and those around me is certainly Achilleus from the Iliad. And recall, so angry was he at Agamemnon for taking something from him that he didn't even care that much about, that he begged that his own side be harmed by Zeus, leading to, of course, the death of his best friend, Patroclus. Very good. Very good. And so anger seems to be, if we just think about it, even without moving forward that much, the capacity which allows you to turn your friend into your enemy or to perceive a person who is your friend as an enemy. And so it strikes me as a very dangerous emotion to say you could say, feel that for say, your friend, a family member, a child. Who is your family member? A parent? Perhaps it is very, very dangerous. All right, in any case, so let's meet Marco Lombardo. He was a courteous and virtuous man from Lombardy. In fact, supposedly, he, uh, he took on quite a few debts from other people. He, he would loan out money to them, as a wealthy person is often uh, want to do. And he forgave all those debts upon debt. To forgive a debt means to make it so that somebody does not have to pay those debts back. Many students with our, I believe, something like uh, a trillion and a half uh, dollars of student debt in our country right now are hoping that someday their debts will be forgiven. We'll have to see what ends up happening with that. If only we had hyperopia like the spirits in uh, Dante's Inferno or, <laughs> or Purgatorio. And so he considers then the relationship between the stars and free will. In Canto 16, lines 67 to 102, and then 18 again, 61 to 75. Something interesting about this is that if you remember the parallelism between the Inferno and the Purgatorio, we have another character who talks about the relationship between the stars and free will in Canto 15 of the Inferno. 
Uh, he was a, a character who was amongst those who were violent, violent against God, nature, or art. Does anybody recall who it was that said, if you just follow your star, you cannot fail to reach a glorious harbor? Yes. Bernetto Latini. Very good. And though Bernetto Latini, where was he? We just kind of said it, but in general. Hell, which means he was right or wrong. Wrong. And so he seems to have believed that if you just, that every human has some sort of destiny that if they just fulfill it, they will turn out fine, which is obviously wrong because where is he? In hell. Right, exactly. And so he seems to come down on the side that humans do not have free will. Well, Marco Lombardo, who finds himself in the Purgatorio, is uh, a little bit different. A little bit different. In fact, he says, and I really like this point, and let me see whether I have its own slide. Okay, I do have my own slide for it. We'll get into that in just a second. So the second thing that he's going to talk about is the appropriate relationship between the church and the state. He's going to use a very powerful metaphor called the two, uh, the two sons theory of Rome to say that Rome once had two sons that shine down upon it. One represented by a pastoral crook and one by a sword. And we'll talk about that. And um, then he also, of course, like many of the commentators in the Inferno and in the Purgatorio, calls Italy, or the Italian peninsula, because it's ununified, a den of all malice. Great. All right, so let's talk about the stars and free will. And let's try and understand what it is that's important about this. So, at the time of Dante, and even still to some extent, depending on how you look at it, people were very keen to understand uh, what their natal charts were, what, what the position of the heavens were, where the stars were in the sky when they were born, because they felt that that would in some way affect their temperament. And their temperament in some way would be who it was they were and what it was they were meant to do as a destiny. And if I were to ask you right now, are people still interested in ideas like who it is they are and what their destiny is, so much so that they're willing to uh, read their astrological signs and horoscopes? Do we still have those sorts of things? Yes, you might say, Mr. Schmidt, we consider that pseudoscience. We don't consider that a verifiable fact. But do we still have horoscopes? And do people still get interested in them? And do you still see things like birthday calendars that you can buy at bookstores? Yes, you do. I recently saw one at a Barnes & Noble. And so, it's very interesting. And, I mean, I would say that we just have a more sophisticated notion now. The contemporary science of psychometrics which has given us uh, many personality inventories, like the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs uh, type inventory, I believe is the official name, and also the big five uh, trait scales. Humans have always been interested in why they are the way they are. And so, well, a big question becomes this. If you're born with a bunch of fundamental traits, like certain intelligence, a certain amount of extroversion, certain amount of, amount of disagreeability, a certain height, a certain hair color, a certain eye color, well, what question might you ask about yourself? Well, the question might be this. Am I determined to do everything that I'm determined to do, or do I have a choice? And that's been a big philosophical question throughout all time. In fact, it's one of the questions that to this day, I, with Dr. Matthew Roos and my neuroscience podcast, am trying to answer. But we think we do have an answer, and I think that we agree with Marco Lombardo. Because this is what he says. He says, the stars may initiate movements. They might get you started. They might exert an influence on you. 
But if the stars made your decisions for you, could we call you as a person good or bad? Because what is it that determines whether you're good or bad? In fact, that seems to be the notion behind that terrible book that I have not read, so I don't know if it's terrible, called The Fault in Our Stars. Have any of you read or seen that? Yeah. Well, the idea behind The Fault in Our Stars seems to be that the stars made a mistake. Well, hmm. And I do understand that the premise behind that book is that there's a terrible tragedy that has to do with disease, and that does sound bad and all. But what I would question is whether that was the fault of the stars or not, or whether what happened is that which must have happened. In any case, if you do not have free will and you do something bad, do you blame yourself or do you blame something beyond yourself? You blame something beyond yourself. What would that thing be? Well, it could be anything, but in the medieval ages, in Europe, in Italy, what that thing could be were the stars. Well, what's the problem with blaming the stars for the bad things that you do? Well, whoever you blame or give responsibility to for an action is the person who is responsible for fixing that action. What is the problem with blaming a star for your poor action? Yes? The stars are not going to fix your actions, right? They are not going to correct your mistakes. That seems to be a major problem about locating the cause of your uh, decisions outside of yourself. Uh, they cannot, and this is something your teachers probably frequently say to you, certainly this teacher does, I cannot make your decisions for you. Have all of you heard some version of that statement from some authority figure at some point, right? They say, I can see very clearly what it is you should do, but who still has to do it? You. That's right. And you all know that. You all know that. And so, is blaming the stars, like Brunetto Latini appears to do down in the Inferno, just another way of avoiding responsibility? And you might want to ask, are there modern ways we do this sort of thing? Do we say things like, if I hadn't grown up here, things would be different. If I'd had different parents, things would be different. If I'd grown up with different things, things would be different. Are these things that we say, think, consider at times? Well, Marco Lombardo's point seems to be fine. Yes, things could be different if you had different things. That said, who is responsible for making your life be the life you want it to be? <coughs> you are. Not Saturn, not Pluto, not Cassiopeia, you. And well, why is that a good thing? Because if things are bad, who could you rely on to make them better? Yourself. And who are you always with? Yourself. So you always have the capacity to improve a bad situation, at least a little, so long as you have yourself. Well, I don't know any time when you wouldn't have yourself as a, you know, sort of an embodied being as you are as a human. All right, in any case, good. We move on to the connection between the church and the state. Marco Lombardo really covers quite a bit of ground here. He's talking about Italy, the Italian peninsula, and why it's now ununified, disunified even, and what the problems are within it. And so when you're trying to analyze a problem, you don't necessarily simply focus on one entry point of the problem. Uh, some, sometimes say, if you're unfit, 
for example, it's not just because you have a bad workout program. You might be inconsistent. You might injure yourself when you work out. You might have a poor diet. You might, uh, you might also not get enough sleep. You might also be ill in some way. There are several reasons why you might be unfit or not getting stronger, not simply one. And so what Marco is doing here is he's laying out all the problems he can see in Italy. And the, the problem with problems is that problems, like successes, compound. And so what we see here is that it's not just that people aren't taking responsibility in Italy. There's even a systemic issue, which is the relationship between the church and the state. And so he seems to believe, giving us this two sons theory, that there was in Rome, which is the great ideal of those who are now Italian during the 14th century, is that the two sons represent two massive truth-giving institutions which protect and allow for the growth of man. And so what are those? Well, of course, they are the church and the state. The church represented by the pastoral crook, that which you use to bring people together into a flock, and the sword, the state, that by which you claim territory and cut it out for yourself and then defend it. So they are both ways of um, changing territory into known or inhabited or your territory and then defining that space in a very specific way. And so what his idea seems to be is that the idea of the church and the idea of the state are not separate concepts at all. That in fact, they are part of the same concept. They are simply two halves of the same, what's that expression? Coin. And that in order for one of them to work, how many of them have to work? Both, right. And so if the church fails, what happens to the state? The state fails. If the state fails, what happens to the church? Well, here's the problem. Ever since the donation of Constantine and the church acquired land and wealth, the church has become a secular state-like power. That has set it at odds against the, uh, against the state uh, during the times of Dante. And so whereas the church and the state were supposed to be balanced and have their own separate differing powers, one with temporal uh, sort of physical financial power, one with sort of spiritual authority, that would be the church. The idea is that one has one domain, one has the other, they keep themselves in check. It's an idea, uh, it's sort of a, a less sophisticated balance of powers idea than uh, what we have in our state. Of course, we have a balance of powers when it comes to our political system, right? We have a legislative system, that's Congress, the House and the Senate. We have a judicial system, that's the federal uh, uh, court system as well as the Supreme Court. And then we also have an executive branch, and that's the president and the vice president. And they all are supposed to balance each other so that we do not have, say, a Caesar-like king. Well, Dante says that's very useful because when you have balance or two forces that can oppose each other with equal strength, that keeps them from doing what? Becoming corrupt. Because if you don't have somebody checking your strength who is of equal strength to you, who is to keep you from becoming corrupt? 
And if nobody's there to check you, what are you more likely to do? We know this from certain studies, right? I told you about the study where we place a, we place a dish of candy uh, and it, there's a little sign that says, please just take one. And if we put a poster in front of that with a person's face and eyes looking at you, people are less likely to take two or more pieces of candy. It seems that that which you can do in private, that which you can do unchecked, you will by nature be more corrupt in your decision making. And perhaps that's just one piece of evidence and we could look for more, but it is interesting. You might want to think about uh, how you conduct yourself in public where there are many people around who can check your behavior as opposed to how you behave in private. Would any of you say that your private behavior is, is more decorous or better than your public behavior? Or would you say it's, a, it's a, that's where you kind of let out the things you don't want other people to see? Think about it for yourselves. Think about it for yourselves. And so the, the claim that Marco makes, which is part of the problem of Florence, which is part of the problem they're no longer as strong as Rome, which is part of why these people's lives are not as good as they could be, is that the church has dirtied itself. It no longer serves its correct function. It has tried to become a state-like power. That was never what it was meant to do. That destroys the entire balance of the cosmos as far as Marco is concerned and as far as Dante is concerned. And potentially, if he, they are correct about the conceptual relationship between the states and the church, is, hmm, well, something well worth thinking about. All right. In any case, let's talk about the art. As you know, in each one of these cornices, we have examples of the exemplary virtue as well as the vice we want to get away from it. Now, I don't know if I, I misstated this, so I'm going to say it one more time just to make sure that I correct myself. Uh, we talked about the idea that the art exists as a whip or a bridle, and I talked about that being a horse metaphor. Um, remember that the whips, which are made from love as they are described, are the virtuous acts. And I think I might have inverted that. They are what whip you towards the things you should do. Whereas the bridles, which are the, the pieces of sort of like leather that you pull up on the bit on a horse in order to make it stop, uh, those are the vices or the examples of vicious art that you want to restrain yourselves away from or navigate yourselves around. Uh, you don't want to fall subject or prey to those. Uh, I believe that, uh, or at least this is a claim made by a clinical psychologist who's recently made some fame for commenting on the Old Testament, that he, he claims that in the story of Cain, when God speaks to Cain, uh, he says that you have, you have sort of mated with sin, and the, the word for sin there or is, is like the word for a predatory cat, something which is something weird, something quite odd. Um, yes, in any case, so you want to stay away from that sort of thing, in any case, the, something worth avoiding. So. These images, in the first cornice, we saw actual physical images sort of sculpted into the wall. In the second one, we heard disembodied voices. In the third, we get even more abstract. Because it's so dark and there's smoke everywhere amongst these, these angry, these wrathful people, the only way we're going to see anything is if we see it inside our what's, our minds. And so imaginary images start to form in Dante's head. And the first one, and these first ones are images of the virtue 
which is supposed to calm anger. And that virtue seems to be gentleness or meekness. Now, I want to quickly tell you about what the word meek means. Most people think meek means weak because it rhymes with it. <laughs> That's wrong. To be meek means the same thing as to be gentle. Are you being gentle with somebody if you are weak, or are you simply acting weakly towards them? You're simply acting weakly. You're simply being what you are. But if you are strong and you act softly towards somebody, you are actually what? You're actually gentle or meek, right? You have to be strong to be gentle. Otherwise, you're just doing what it is you do. In fact, me as a teacher, I remember when I was very young, I was a CrossFit athlete, I was very stern. And what is it that I had to learn how to do so that I could be a much better teacher? Still working on it. I had to learn to be gentle. That's right. I had to learn, or at least gentler. Gentler, like a gentle man. Exactly. And so, the first example we get is Mary to Jesus. Another one of these New Testament examples. And so, the idea was this. That during the Passover, young Jesus, as a young man, I think he was something like an adolescent, like 12, was sent to the temple to learn from the scribes and the Pharisees there. The Pharisees were the learned class of Jewish people. Scribes would be like me, like a teacher. Um, and so they were teaching Jesus something. Now, tell me if this has ever happened to any of you. Have any of you ever had it to where your parents said, you can go do this for this amount of time, and then you stayed doing whatever it was you were supposed to do for way longer than you were allowed to? Show of hands. We got plenty of hands here. All right. Okay. Now tell me this. Did any of you then return to your parents or have your parents show up in a huff and really let you have it because they were so scared and they had no idea where you were and you didn't let them know and they're so frustrated with you? Have any of you experienced that before? Oh my goodness. I, I remember I had a friend named Wade. And I've always been an exploratory young human. That's why I think I teach these books that very few people teach. And so uh, what I did with this friend Wade is we went for a little walk. We were supposed to go to a local convenience store like two blocks away. And I was like, that convenience store is lame. I too was 12. I said, let's walk all the way from your house to my house where we have soft drinks we can get. The one thing is my, my house is like an hour, hour and 15 minutes away. So by the time we got there, then my parents caught me and Wade sneaking into our own refrigerator and we're like what are you doing here I thought you were at this other house called Wade's parents and uh, we didn't hang out that much afterwards because they were so upset with him because we had not gone where it was we were supposed to go and they were freaked out and so how is this an example of gentleness well you can imagine that when your child disappears for some amount of time and then you see them again that you are so scared for them that that fear, once you see that they're okay, immediately turns into which emotion? Anger. Anger or wrath. Yes, I can tell you another story about when I was four and I hid from my father at the end of preschool and he said he had the cops looking for me and everything and for two hours and I was just playing a game. They were not very happy with me when they found me. No, they were not. No, they were not. And so what Mary apparently says or supposedly said to Jesus here is, she doesn't lay into him. She doesn't furiously exclaim at him. She says, why hast thou, it says though there, thus dealt with us? And I think that's a good thing to say. She says, why'd you do this to us? And I think that's an important learning experience for the young person. It's like when you act in that way, you cause those who love you tremendous pain. And I think that's a far 
more useful way of teaching a young person of the consequences of their action than just yelling at them, right? When you're getting yelled at, you become defensive. You become defensive, are you in a state where you want to learn from the person you are defending yourself against? No, no, it's the opposite. You are not receptive to what it is they have to say. So if you all, which I expect you will be, are become authorities as managers or teachers or parents, or whatever it is you become at some point, and somebody deeply frustrates or angers you, something that this art suggests you could do, which would be actually useful if you want to prevent that sort of frustration or anger again, could be tell them how it is they made you feel and ask them, why did you do that to me? Would you like that to be done to yourself? Because remember, we're isomorphic. We share the same nervous systems, all the same brain subcortical systems, prefrontal cortex systems. We have the same hands, the same feet, the same shaped eyes. We feel and see the world in very similar ways to each other. If something hurts you, most likely it hurts who else? Everybody. That's right. Everybody. Right. Good. Second example. Pesistratos. This is a really great example. <laughs> this is a really great example for several reasons. You'll see a wife who uh, reminds us of many of the ancient wives that we've considered, uh, uh, especially ones like the mother of, or the stepmother of Hippolytus, also uh, mostly of the goddess Juno or Hera here. Because there's, uh, this story, I can't give you a ton of details. We can look them, look them up. But here, here are the essential or the relevant details. Pesistratos was a sixth century tyrant of Athens. And remember, tyrant means that you are an illegitimate ruler of a place, illegitimate by means of blood. Because what legitimizes a king is that they have a blood relationship to the king before, often they with a mythological link to a divinity uh, that once existed. So like King Minos received his, his um, uh, divine favor from Zeus, who was his father, or say uh, Julius Caesar and Octavian Caesar, who would become Augustus Caesar, linked their heritage back to Aeneas and therefore Aphrodite and therefore Zeus or Jove. And so divine heritage. It's so interesting. Well, so supposedly, Pesistratus had a daughter and a wife. And this daughter of his, there was a suitor that wanted to have her hand, and he did something very bad. A PDA, a public display of affection. What he did is he kissed the daughter in public. Now, this is a big issue because not allowed, because he was not her husband, uh, could be uh, very deeply punished. And also, very dangerous. Because if you kiss the daughter of a tyrant who has not necessarily chosen you as her husband, what might that tyrant just do to you? Kill you, right? Get rid of you. Who are you? And so that is exactly what the mom in a Queen Amada sort of way wanted to happen to this young man. She said, deal with him harshly, Pesistratos. And he gives one of the greatest responses in all of literature. What should we do with one who wishes us ill if one who loves us is condemned by us? I love that expression because what we hypothesized earlier was that the power of wrath is to turn your friend into your what? 
enemy and to treat them like you're, they're your enemy. So think about this. You're a tyrant. That means a king of a place. You have a bunch of subjects. One of your subjects makes a mistake at your expense, your daughter's expense. What is your natural reaction? You want to do what to him? You want to punch or punish him? Yes, sure. <coughs> what does that mean that your emotion, your anger, which arises naturally in this situation, is suggesting that you do? To treat your subject, who is your friend, like your enemy. Because what is it that you do with your enemies when you're at war? You kill them. Well, what is it that's suggested to, to Pesistratos by his wife that he do with his young subject, who's obviously just got some bad... Uh, bad judgment at this time. Kill him? Well, that's sort of the problem with Star Wars, right? What happens to the admirals every time they fail Darth Vader? Is anybody a Star Wars fan here? Yeah, yes, 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 yes. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Yes, they get force choked until they die. And that's sort of the fascist idea, right? That if you make a mistake, the system is perfect, you're imperfect, which do we, which do we fix? The system or you? And if your imperfection is too great, how do, we, how do we permanently fix you so that your imperfections no longer infect us? By killing you. And that's the problem of a fascist system because who doesn't make mistakes? No one. And so that seems to be the problem with anger. You'll feel anger at whom throughout your life? Almost Everybody, right? Because almost everybody is irritating or frustrating or angering in some way or another, especially if you spend enough time with them. But if anger makes you want to treat them like enemies, well, I guess the big question you might want to ask is, how many friends will you have at the end of your life? Think about Achilles. If all you ever do is treat those who cause anger in you as enemies. And then you might want to think, is that even a very useful strategy for adapting to the world? Because what makes humans stronger than being by themselves always? Being together, right. There's an old, there's an old expression about this. Um, uh, a, a father gave each of his three sons one stick. And then he came by to those sticks and he put them over his knee and he broke them in half. He said, that's what happens when you stand apart. And he took three more sticks, gave them to them, put them together. Tried to break them over his knee. What happened? Couldn't do it. He said, that's how strong you are when you are together. And so, anger seems to be the emotion that breaks humans who are stronger together apart. Is that a useful emotion to embody then? No. It is a weakening emotion, seems to be the idea. And so, we know about this from last year, the example of Achilles and Agamemnon. When they became enraged with each other in the first book of the Iliad, and they ended up, and Achilles stopped fighting, did the Achaeans become stronger or weaker? Far weaker. And in fact, they, they had their first ever losses in 10 years of fighting against the Trojans after that. And I think that's an excellent example of the power of wrath to harm. All right, third example of gentleness or meekness. This one is also gnarly. And I think we might just have to end with this today. I didn't know about this example, and I didn't know about the lives of the saints until, until I started teaching Dante. And uh, frankly, I, I'm going to spend a little more time learning about them because 
Well, how you become a saint or martyr in the early Christian tradition is you've got a what for your faith. You have to die. And usually in a pretty unique and awful way. Well, St. Stephen here, we get an imaginary image of him. It's our second Christian image. Remember our sect and our, our, we've had two Christian images and one Greco-Roman, which reminds us very much of the envious. Well, supposedly, he was proclaiming his faith. And, well, what is the natural reaction when somebody's coming around and proclaiming their faith and saying, things are like this, things are like this. You're so wrong about everything you've ever thought. How do we all feel? You're wrong about everything you've ever thought. We're all feeling what well up within us? Anger or irritation, right? Well, we feel anger or irritation against this crazy guy who won't shut up talking about something we don't want to hear about. We might decide that he's committing a crime. He's a nuisance. And, well, the punishment for this crime for St. Stephen, was stoning. And as we've talked about, because we've seen stoning in the context of the Iliad and the Odyssey, recall that it, it was the uh, character, his name is dropped out of my head for some reason, maybe one of you remember, the character who tricked Odysseus into coming to the Trojan War, remember that his fate was to be stoned after Odysseus planted gold underneath his tent and had him uh, convicted as a traitor. Um, I don't know why his, his uh, name has dropped out of my head. I'll remember it for the next lecture. Um, but stoning is a very, very, very old... Oh, you have it? Wasn't it Odysseus? It wasn't Odysseus. It was Odysseus did this to this person. And so, in any case, stoning is a very, very old uh, punishment. In fact, our, our current uh, firing lines are just a more abstract version of that, right? Because if you are stoned by everybody in the community who has killed you, The community itself has, has spoken against you. And that's why I believe there's that biblical quote, uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And well, everybody casts a stone when it comes to stoning. And so you should think about that a little. You're standing there. People are sort of semi-circling around you. And then children, men, women are all throwing stones at you until you know your body eventually fails. It's a very nasty way to die. This guy, while he's being pelted by stones, it says directly in the quote, of his eyes always made gates of heaven, which means they don't become clouded by anger. He sees the truth of the situation, supposedly. And what does he do? I want you to just think about this, just because this is, this is beyond the pale, as far as I'm concerned. Very funky, very interesting, very weird. Not what I would probably be doing myself. He's praying for these people. He's praying that they be absolved of their sin of killing him because he was a just man. Now, I just want you to think. When you get punished unjustly, whether I snap at you or your mom says that you did something but it was your sister that did it, is your first reaction to forgive or to get enraged and talk about how unfair that person is and possibly the entire world? Think about Achilles. One thing got taken away from him that uh, one of his many concubines, what did he fly into? Rage, yes, unjustly taken. When things are taken from us, especially, say, our lives, you might think that we feel rage. What did this man feel? He felt pity. He felt pity for those who were striking him down because he knew that the injustice of them striking him down would have negative effects on every single one of them at some point, and so he pitied them. And, well, I think, 
think that is a very powerful example. And if somebody is going to be the first martyr ever to die by stoning while praying for the people stoning them, it just it strikes me as such a, a magnanimous thing to do that it's almost inconceivable. I can hardly even imagine it. And if you do imagine it, I think it's a very powerful thing to imagine. And that seems to be what Dante is inviting us to do, because how is he seeing what he's conveying to us? Also by his imagination? And that seems to be also a comment on how interesting humans are. Because what can you share with each other, even when you can't see things directly? Your what? Your thoughts, your imagination, that's right, through your words, right. Right, 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 right. Okay, good. That is, we didn't get through quite as much as I wanted to, but that is good for today.